the original title that I have proposed for the TED Talk was Authenticity at Work is a Trap. Like, it's a lie. <laughs> um, and so what I wanted to express with that is it sounds really great, but in practice, especially for Black people, it is the detriment to your career. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture that we rarely discuss in mixed company. This week, we're talking with my very good friend, Jody Ann Beery. She's a speaker and writer who works at the intersections of race and culture in the workplace and health equity. Jody Ann also hosts the Black Cancer Podcast, a show dedicated to giving people of color a chance to commune and talk about their experiences with cancer. We'll be talking about all that and more after this very quick message. So don't go nowhere. Cheers to a great day and this ice cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. We can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona. La vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. I'm so excited to welcome today's guest, Jodi Ann Bury. Jodi Ann, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Yes, I'm welcome. so happy to be here. In a quick sentence, describe your work and what you do. So I will say this. I started my work by trying to envision what my life could look like if I woke up every day and just did what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so in short, for me, that's how I describe my work. Everything that I do is because I want to do it and it's important to me. But to the public, I describe myself as a speaker and writer who works at the intersections of race, culture, and health equity. And I also created mm-hmm. and host a podcast called Black Cancer, which talks about the intersections of our lives as people of color told through our cancer journeys. How did you get into what you're doing at the moment? And like, I'm curious to just like, tell us about the moments that you feel like teed you up to be able to make this type of like work and advocacy your career. So I would say it's always been a part of my world and my life, learning and working in predominantly white institutions, right? So I've been in predominantly mm-hmm. white spaces since the sixth grade, right? Where, you know, my mom, for my own protection, straightened my hair the day before school Mm -hmm. saying that she didn't want me to feel bad that my hair wasn't straight. And Mm -hmm. for me to be like, yes, I'm getting a perm. Like, (laughs) that's what's up. Cause that was such a (laughs) rite of passage, you know, for us to like have straight hair. And like, now I'm a woman. Then for that to be my entry point into predominantly white spaces that, Mm -hmm. you know, since I was 11 years old, refused to see me completely for who I was and what I had to offer. 
And so I think when you have that experience chronically, being yourself at home and being a different version of yourself at school and then in the workplace, you have to develop a way to understand yourself and understand what's happening to you. I think what's always been Mm. foundational to me is to find ways to express myself and to be transparent about what I'm feeling and what I want. And when I'm in spaces that don't want that to happen, I think for me, Mm -hmm. I've always found new ways to keep pressing, which is why I've had so many jobs because I get fired. (laughs) I get fired a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And then professionally, without that safety net of school, you have to find new strategies of how to tell your truth and how to do your work in a way that doesn't put harm to you and doesn't put harm to the people that you're trying to impact. So when I was in the international development space, I worked in global health. I worked at an organization where 80% of my colleagues were African nationals, Black African nationals, Mm. but Mm. almost none of them made decisions for the work that we were doing. And so it became really difficult to understand that you're in in an industry, international development that Mm. is based on colonialism but people have no working definition or ability to talk about that or to talk about racism. And so to be the Black person on the white side of the house, like the Western part of international development organizations, gave Mm -hmm. me a different lens to find a path to not only tell my truth, but to advocate for people who rightfully should be making decisions about the work that we were doing. Yeah. Mm. When I went through my cancer diagnosis, and Brittany, you were there in the hospital with me, When you Mm -hmm. get faced with your mortality, I think there's a lot less space for the bullshit. And right after I got out of that experience, you know, for my own survival, I had to radically shift my life. And so Mm -hmm. that came with career changes, really, really low tolerance for BS um, Mm -hmm. and an urgency to be authentically me. I'm always trying to find ways to serve myself and to serve people like me and to say things that people maybe don't have the language for or don't have the space to express. You found a lot of words earlier (laughs) this year when you did a TED Talk called Why You Should Not Bring Your Authentic Self to Work, which is a hell of a title, by the way. In your talk, I mean, you you frame that whole self ethos as something that's kind of like a trap for employees from underrepresented backgrounds. And it turns into that trap when the company doesn't in turn provide, you know, people like us with tangible support and professional opportunities. Authenticity has become a palatable proxy to mask the pressing need to end the racism, ageism, ableism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, and the like that run rampant throughout our professional lives. Without accountability to examine these systems of bias and power, the call for authenticity fails. What's the problem that Black people face when we show up as our full selves at work? (laughs) It sounds really great to say that we value diversity. We value your authenticity. We want you to push back. What do you really think? You know, I had a supervisor Mm. once tell me, you know, just forget I'm the COO. You know, just talk to me. And I looked at her. I'm like, you trying to set me up? (laughs) (laughs) That's a jig. So that's a no. You know, the original title that I have proposed for the TED Talk was Authenticity at Work is a Trap. Like, it's a lie. (laughs) Um, So what I wanted to express with that is it sounds really great, but in practice, especially for Black people, 
it is the detriment to your career because they say they want these things, but they have no infrastructure to actually support you with that at all. If you say you want my pushback, can you handle it when I disagree with you, you individual person, right? Not the other person that you want to point fingers at who you think is not showing up, you know, to work in the right place. So I think it's so um, precarious for us to figure out which workplaces are actually safe for us because you don't really know how safe it is until you actually do start pushing back or you see people like you push back. And what happens to them? Are they facing backlash? Do they have to leave? You know, are they being punished in some way? And so, Mm. I mean, I'm sure you both have faced this in in a lot of different work experiences that you have where... yeah even just the slightest indication that you might not agree with something or you want to bring something fresh to the table is not mm. met with openness. I completely agree. It's, it's often not safe for us to like be our most true, authentic self. And there are consequences when we do. I think something that mm. also I noticed kind of coming up for me, though, is like with a turn to this type of focus, I, I worry about there's a like a soft thing that feels like it maybe is lost. And I guess like, I feel like I've been lucky and, and privileged that kind of late in my career, you know, I've been able to kind of more consistently work in spaces where like, you know, I could be a little more who I want to be. I could wear my fitted to work or, you know, add the music I want to listen to to the company playlist. But those systems that you mentioned are still in place. And so like, I, you trust me, I would prefer something better. I guess I'm just curious, like how we foreground, you know, the changes you're talking about in the systems of work, but also still advocate a bit for like those, those norms that feels like also kind of box black folks in. And I guess I don't, I worry, I, I'm curious if you think that's having it all. So how do you feel about our voting rights being suppressed all over the country and also having Juneteenth as a holiday. Whoop, it's complicated. <laughs> like, I'm happy that we have Juneteenth as a holiday. <laughs> for many reasons. But, I, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm salty about it, too. Like, I, almost, I do wish it was only us that had it yes. as a holiday, though. That is <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's why I'm salty. <laughs> there are ways that, as folks of color, as people who are underrepresented, we can show up in some ways. So I'm not, I'm not discounting you know, these things that's quote-unquote superficial, like the Juneteenth holiday. But if Mm -hmm. that's all you get, then what's actually changing, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. having Juneteenth as a holiday does not at some point get you voting rights. But having voting rights could absolutely get you Juneteenth, right? And so being able to wear my Afro to a job interview is fantastic. But what about negotiating my salary and compensation package, right? Like, <laughs> if I had more power to be at the level of seniority that my skill set deserves, Absolutely. you know, I would rather have the structural things versus some of these individual norms because the structural things will get you easier to those norms than the other way around. I think we have those norms first because. They're easy Mm -hmm. to give out and they don't implicate the company for having to risk anything or do anything fundamentally different. Absolutely. You know, it makes me think about like one of the most salient points that you bring up in the TED Talk, which is like the the quote unquote caricature of professionalism. 
and how it skews our perceptions of ourselves at work. You know, since the idea of professionalism is so skewed toward white patriarchal cultural norms, like how do we redefine professionalism or should we just like get rid of professionalism, like the idea of professionalism altogether? I think getting rid of it means that we don't interrogate it. Anytime someone Mm. uses professionalism is an opportunity Mm. to dig in, well, what is that the proxy for? You know, Mm. what the heck is executive presence? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, oh, wait, is that like a real corporate term people use? Yes. I, I think I never got to the level where I'd be I, evaluated as having. Is <laughs> or they didn't tell you you were being evaluated for it, basically. <laughs> you know, like, like what does that mean? And I think the more you dig into it, the more the concepts fall apart. And so I think we have to constantly interrogate it. Or maybe we get to better concepts, right? Does professionalism mean treating people respectfully? Right. Does it mean transparency? I would love that as a concept. Please tell me what I'm being paid compared to everybody else, right? Please tell That's, me how I, you, That sounds professional to that me. That sounds very professional. <laughs> you know, please be real about how my performance is being evaluated. I had someone in my review once say that my body language impacted their ability to learn. What? Wow. Exactly. That is, yeah. <laughs> and that's a problem what does that mean? for you. That's a pro- that's you what that's an issue doing? you need to deal with. I do not know. Yeah. And that was written down in my performance evaluation. Your body language wow. impacted our ability to learn. Were you doing the hustle? Like I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> what? And so it's like, can we have transparency about that? Like, can we have a real conversation about how gendered and racialized that type of feedback is and that it actually should not have the ability to even show up in my performance review. So something that feels really connected to like what you just mentioned is your piece on imposter syndrome. It's in the Harvard Business Review titled, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. So you say imposter syndrome is defined as like doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. You know how it disproportionately affects like high achieving people who, you know, find it difficult to accept where they are. Say a bit more about the harm that can come from Black people, and specifically Black women, in taking on this type of narrative? I always find that if I put myself down or if I think negatively about myself in some way, that that's actually the motivation that I need to keep going and to do better. That if I'm ever satisfied and excited about what I'm doing and feeling good and confident about myself, then the work would stop. And what I've been mm, working through with therapy is that, yeah. yeah I was like, going to say, Eric, you, you, have a, you had a reaction to that. <laughs> Keep going, but damn. Yeah, I might, so it's, I might this, <laughs> it's the sense that I don't have to suffer or feel bad to be motivated. And I think what I find as a Black woman is it's so easy to be in this martyrdom space where I have to take on so much to help other people or to even help myself. And that just doesn't have to be the case. But what imposter syndrome does, by making it a syndrome, which is not where the concept started, it started coined as imposter phenomenon. And I think the way that we treat women with kind of pathologizing our experiences with discrimination, like there's something wrong with you if you're you know, not feeling good about yourself, is this way where we focus on, well, what can I do? What am I doing wrong? I'm not confident enough. I'm not saying the right things. I'm not doing the right things. And and that's why 
you know, I don't belong here. You know, I really shouldn't be here. I don't think I'm smart enough. People are just kind of blowing smoke up my ass or whatever. And that is not the case that we can just feel better about ourselves, especially for Black women, because it's our confidence that often gets us in trouble in the first place. We talked a little bit about, like, internalizing. As far as, like, externalizing some of these issues, like, in thinking about how we speak up about these issues of race and gender in the workplace, you know, we had a pre-interview, you and I chatted a a, a few weeks ago about this conversation, and something that you said in our pre-interview stuck out to me so much. You mentioned that in your experience, it's been easier for you to talk about or get support on issues of sexism at work versus racism. And that was very interesting to me because I've had the exact opposite experience in majority Black workplaces, but also not necessarily majority Black workplaces. And it's kind of interesting on how that target (laughs) of oppression (laughs) can change depending on who's in your environment. Like, what have you noticed about that? Like, a lot of these conversations that we have about equitable treatment at work tend to focus on majority white male-dominated spaces, but not every workplace is like that. But still... The systems. Some... Yeah, the systems, <laughs> the system shows up. <laughs> yes, it is. So there. how do we navigate that? Like, how should we be thinking about those power dynamics? Yeah, I think um, where that came from for me is because I come mostly from a nonprofit background and then worked in a women's focus uh, startup. And so between mm-hmm. the nonprofit space and that startup, I was always surrounded by white women. And mm. whew. Yeah. <laughs> I worked in nonprofit space for a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, those situations were really tough because it's very easy to talk about sexism. They have the experience of, of that themselves. But what yeah. white women are often trying to achieve is the power status of white men. And I think women of color are trying to create power for everybody, right? They're not looking to hold yes. those same dynamics. And so it was very difficult to talk about race because they want to find sisterhood with you in talking about sexism as they're being racist to you. It's very complicated. And so sometimes I've, at least in my workplaces, have often found a lot of um, solidarity and support from white men versus white women, um, especially in places that have predominantly white women as a dominant group in that workplace. And so I think in navigating that, And I think this is really important, too, in understanding that the experiences of Black people at work are not monolithic, right? It can depend on your accent, where in the world you're from, how you style yourself, how many languages you speak, the color of your skin. Colorism is (laughs) intense. You know, we've talked about that a lot. Um, It -hmm. talks about it. It matters on what schools that you've, you've gone to, what roles you hold. Um, and what's happening in your workplace. And so I will say that every person's experience of discrimination and bias is going to be different. But as people of color, Black people and you know non-Black people of color, we do have this linked fate of marginalization at work, you know, if we're not holding the power. And what's been discouraging... Um, when I talk to so many people of color about their work experiences, and I often don't talk about this in white spaces because I'm not trying to have that inside conversation outside. But when other folks of color are the source of your bias and discrimination as a person of color at work. 
That's a toughie. That's that's, that's a, a, I mean, a hard conversation be, to have. Yeah, it is a hard conversation. I'm I'm curious. I mean, I'm not gonna get into all my. I'm not gonna get into my experiences today. But I I'm curious as to like when that larger conversation will start and like how that will go. Because I mean, being honest, the most damaging experiences that I've had at work have been with. Black people, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, which in in even regardless of the gender of who was acting upon me, interestingly enough, the dominant force in the environment became patriarchy because and sexism because you know you were able to control for race basically. Yeah, um, I'm curious when that conversation will start and what that's going to sound like. People on Twitter, let me know. The day y'all kick it off, I will show up. I have a testimony. <laughs> We'll make the clubhouse <laughs> that day. <laughs> I want to turn back to kind of larger companies and more majority white spaces. It just makes me think about like the accountability piece. You know, like it feels like to a certain degree at the moment that we're in right now, a lot of companies are kind of hip to the game. They know that there are like certain things they have to signal to not get like flamed on Twitter or like cussed out, you know, and they're hiring folks like, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion people to kind of come in to be the face of the change. And hiring a person does feel like the first step to improve. But I guess I'm curious, how do we hold employers more accountable to like the promise to actually deliver results? I think when we talked about transparency as a marker of professionalism, like, can you be transparent about what's actually going on in your company? And you know, what resources this individual has to create work. And so a couple of things I want to share here, that there's a major tech company that continues to boast about their, you know, 13%, you know, folks of color or Black folks specifically, I forget which, that they have at their company, right? Like we're maintaining close to population level of folks of color within our company. Cool. Mm -hmm. But that 13% can stand, but the people that make up those 13% are always different people, right? You can't retain the same people that make up that 13%. Or where in the company does that 13% sit? Are they pooling mm. at the lower uh, paid levels or low, lower influential levels of the company? Like, can we be transparent to go a little bit more into that data? Like, do you know that data? Are you, and you're, are you going to share that publicly? So when it comes to hiring this, you know, chief diversity officers, what have you. Sure, you can have one person, but I want to know what decisions does that person get to make on their own? Who is that person accountable to? And best practice is that like a chief diversity officer reports directly to the CEO, right? How many resources do they have? Do they have the appropriate headcount and, and um, finances to do the work that they need to do? And how is this company ensuring that Every single person who works here is accountable to our DEI goals. Even though one person's job is just like the CFO, every single person at that company needs to ensure that they are connecting with their colleagues, mentoring, you know, managing people well, and not just managing people who are demographically similar to you, that you're making the right hires, that you're stepping in and interceding when microaggressions occur that you're ensuring that your team st stays, you know, skilled up and current with how stereotypes show up in the workplace, how to do your work better, how to best serve your customers who are underserved. Everyone has that role. So it doesn't matter what your function is within the company. There are at least 
five things that you can do better to live up to whatever the strategy is that the chief diversity officer, whoever is functioning in that role, sets when it comes to DEI for the whole company. We need a charge for just to listen to this one. Like for um, <laughs> <laughs> a couple companies. It's just like, I just want to send you a snippet. Here's an here's a audiogram that'll save you. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Just lingering on that. So this feels like a good place for us to take a break. And when we get back from the break, we are going to be talking to Jody Ann about all things healthcare, race, disability, and equity. Well, maybe not all things, but a lot of things. And if you want to hear it, you have to come back after the break. Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona. La vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Not everything in life is flexible. But at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. So welcome back, everyone. And Jody Ann. Welcome back. Brittany, you've always been here. Uh, Jody Ann, another kind of crucial aspect of your work is your focus on healthcare and disability. And, you know, you discuss that in depthly in your podcast, which one shout out is amazing um, Black Cancer. I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about your cancer journey and like why you started the podcast, why you felt that was important. When I went to public health school, I always looked for kind of what are these social determinants to health? What are the structural ways that creates good and bad health? And really looking at under-resourced communities and what health looked like for Black people, for poor people, for immigrants, um, for folks of color, what have you. And so to my surprise, a couple years after graduating, I found myself living the experience of that data of going in and out of doctor's offices where people did not pay attention to my pain or think that it was valid. For three years, I did that. 
in and out, trying to tell people that there was something wrong with me and that not be taken seriously. And this is someone who has health insurance, who has Mm. the language and the knowledge to be able to talk to clinicians and nurses. This is someone who Mm -hmm. has access to these spaces. And I was still faced, you know, left, right, and center with people who fundamentally did not believe that what was wrong with me was real. And so finally, I took a very long break from that. I had a nurse practitioner who was doing like dry needling in my back. It was a white dude with like a Southern accent, which is not common to hear out in Seattle. And so it kind of surprised me a bit. And as he's putting these needles in my back, he made a comment that my skin was tough. And that immediate image in my head was just of like enslaved African women having their back exposed and being whipped. And that was just like the first thing that came into my head. And at that point, I was like, enough is enough. And after that experience, I didn't go back to the doctor for a whole year. Hmm. In that time, the pain that I was experiencing in my body worsened and finally went back to the doctor and told him, I was like, listen, for the next six months, whatever it is that you want to do, whatever tests you want to run, let's just do it. I'm not going to fight this anymore. Like, just throw everything at it. And that itself is a privileged position because my first MRI Mm -hmm. cost me $400. Jeez. And that MRI showed that there was a massive tumor inside of my spinal cord. And so because it was inside the spinal cord, the risk of paralysis completely from the neck down was there if I did nothing about it. And to do the surgery also carried the risk of complete paralysis from the neck down. So, I mean, Brittany, you saw me in the hospital. (laughs) After Mm -hmm. the surgery, I was partially paralyzed. I was hospitalized for almost a month having to relearn how to walk, relearning how to use my hands, just relearning how to control my body completely. And that was probably the most traumatizing thing that I've ever experienced in my entire life. And this is someone who maybe didn't have to face it at that time because my symptoms were worse than it was when I first told people that there was something wrong with me. Hmm. And I think in that experience, just the loneliness of that, I couldn't find a way out until I met other people who had faced cancer in some way. And not just people who had it, but people who cared for people, you know, who were caregivers, who were family members, who were friends, you know, loved ones, Um, people who were previvors, right? Had genetic mutations Mm. for cancer. And the more I kept, talking to other folks, other people of color who faced cancer in some way, I realized that living this experience of the data of health inequity looks so differently for so many of us. Mm. And in that, I feel like I had lost my personhood. I just felt like this cog in the healthcare system that even though I had the most skill set to navigate, I was still getting lost and kind of swept up in it. And meeting other people and hearing other people's stories who were similar to mine in a lot of ways and different than mine kind of brought me back a bit from that despair. And so that's what started the idea for the podcast. Wow. There's a moment in a, in a recent 
Black Cancer bonus episode with Calvin Yates, who's also a cancer survivor, where you're both basically comparing notes about your (laughs) neuropathy, which is, you're laughing because the episode is funny, even though what I'm about to say is not necessarily. But y'all are... Y'all are comparing notes about your neuropathy, which is like nerve damage that often results in numbness, tingling, and pain. And it's commonly something that can affect people who have had spinal cord injuries, like both of you have. And you both seem in the episode almost like geeked (laughs) to be talking to someone who's had so many of the exact same experiences as you dealing with neuropathy and disability and the modifications that you both need. I had a lot of coworkers because I was new to the job who would always ask me like why I had a heating pad all the time. And I'm like, I right. yeah. I don't want to go into yeah. this. <laughs> he was like, yeah. my body Money. hurts always. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> like none of your damn business. And it's like, and then when you start explaining like some of this stuff to people, you sound crazy. After all the isolation that you just talked about, what did it feel like to have that kind of moment with a guest? Kelvin has multiple myeloma, which disproportionately impacts Black people. And that's a blood cancer. Colin Powell, um, who recently passed away with COVID-19 complications because mm-hmm. he has cancer, also had multiple myeloma. And so we were geeking out, right? Because we had such different experiences with like what types of cancer that we had. But because his created fractures in his back, we both had spinal cord injuries, like you said. And Mm -hmm. it is so difficult to explain neuropathy to people who have never experienced it. Mm -hmm. So the best way I could describe it is like, you know, the feeling when your foot falls asleep Mm -hmm. and it like Mm -hmm. is numb and tingling and all that kind of stuff. So just imagine that feeling, but everywhere and all the time. That's my everyday life. And to finally meet someone who also has to travel with 10 different shoe options because like what we put on our feet can impact our mobility, who also deals with temperature issues. And it's difficult to describe. Um, Like I was at Thanksgiving dinner the other day and my sister-in-law kept, you know, like, touching me like when she's laughing you know she hits me on the shoulder and I'm like can you please mm-hmm. stop touching me <laughs> it's so painful just because of that mm. um sensory disability and these are types of disabilities that we don't talk about like sensory yeah. Yeah. you know that tactile temperature things and so to find someone that you don't have to do these it's kind of like this but it's like that with that you can actually have a conversation with was so mm-hmm. valuable to me and him which is why I think we spent so much time just going deeper and deeper in that. And I think when you can find someone else who's also experiencing that, it's like your whole world just opens up. And that's what I felt with Kelvin. And I feel Mm. like so many people who listen to the podcast can find those experiences for themselves with something that feels so niche. Like we don't get to talk about that. And I think especially as Black people, we have to talk about race so much that we don't get space to talk about our health, to talk about disability, to talk about the other identities that we hold. Mm. And so that just meant it was such an unleashing to just be more authentically myself with someone who understood what it's like to really struggle in such an invisible way. 
You know, I want to turn a little bit from Black Cancer and the conversations that you all have had and kind of like zoom out a little bit. Something that comes up a lot in the podcast is how everybody on some level has to deal with the anti-Black bias that exists throughout the healthcare system. One of the results of this is that many people have been raised to make excuses for their pain. If your pain is not believed or if your healthcare provider thinks that you are tough or infallible in some way, then people can make excuses. What strategies can we as Black people use to feel more empowered to speak up for ourselves when we're in these medical environments and speaking with healthcare professionals? My number one advice is that you have to believe yourself more than you believe anyone else. If I didn't Mm. have that, I wouldn't have kept going back to the doctor, right? I had so many excuses of why I was feeling what I was feeling. And then my sister said to me randomly one day, this is before my diagnosis, when I was just like complaining about something. She goes, you're not Serena Williams. (laughs) And I was like, I know that. But (laughs) But she was like... Yes, you're an active person. Because I I was like running, I was dragon boating, I was climbing, I was snowboarding. Like I was doing a lot of physical things. She was like, you're not an elite athlete. You really shouldn't be in this much pain. Hmm. And I was like, I am not Serena Williams, (laughs) right? Like I'm just a regular active person. Um, Which, I mean, speaking to the active, I had a doctor um, after he did all this like physical assessment of me when I was telling him I was experiencing a lot of pain. He told me that the pain that I was feeling correlates with having a sedentary lifestyle. And I looked at him and I said, Mm. what makes you think I have a sedentary lifestyle? And he had nothing to say. Because I was like, because I do, and I listed like 10 activities. And he's like, well, why didn't you tell me? Now putting it on me. And I said, well, you didn't ask me. If I came in here decked out in Patagonia and had a, you know, blonde ponytail, would you think differently about what I was capable mm. of? Or if I, if I had a different mm-hmm. body size, would you think differently about what I was doing with this body? Right? So to get back to your question, though, I think what we can do is first and foremost, believe ourselves and understand Mm -hmm. that pain is not normal. Pain is not okay. Pain is your body telling you that there is something wrong. And so can we listen to ourselves instead of buying into this expectation that pain, especially as Black people, is just part of life. Mm -hmm. Suffering is part of our lives. So what is this other thing that you're experiencing? Right? So I think that can ground your self-advocacy foundationally and also thinking about how you would advocate for other people. And to the Mm. stereotypes of the medical community, you know, for example, feeling that, you know, Black women feel less pain or whatever it is. Yeah. You could actually use that bias to help us if you think that that is true. If you think that Black women do not experience the same level of pain then for our interests, you should say, if I ask you on a scale of one to 10, you know, what's your pain level? And you say a three, then maybe mm-hmm. it's actually an eight, right? Maybe mm. I need to sound the alarm that there could be something going on here because maybe you're underreporting how much pain you're feeling. I want to mm-hmm. turn back to like your disability advocacy for a second. 
according to the CDC, you know, one in four American adults lives with a disability. But despite that, you know, it feels pretty evident that like the country has a long way to go in terms of like adaptive solutions for disabled people. Like, I'm curious, like, where you are seeing, like, momentum in disability justice, like, at the moment. I will say um, the biggest opportunity for that right now could be leveraged as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I'll think about, you know, disability mm-hmm. in the workplace. So, yes, one in four in the population um, have some type of disability. And I think the last study that I read only about 21% of people disclose their disability to their employer. So it means that there's a bunch of folks that work with you who are navigating disabilities that you don't know about and might not ever know about. Wait, question. I just want to clarify. You mean 21% of people who are living with disabilities disclose them or 21% of people overall? 21% of people who are living with disabilities disclose that disability to their employer. Gosh. Wow. So, folks, it's a lot of people. Um, And so many people that I've talked to from some work that I've done um, and some work that's forthcoming is that the Mm -hmm. pandemic alleviated the covering that we have to do of, you know, hiding that disability at work. And created circumstances mm. where we can better manage them at home. And so for me personally, you know, I have to wear things that don't touch my skin a lot because of that sensory disability. I get to keep my mm. apartment at 74 degrees because um, cold temperatures or drafts aggravate ni- my neuropathy. I get to have mm-hmm. my heating pad, which I have on my feet right now without having to explain it to other people. You know, there are people mm-hmm. who have disabilities that um, having a private bathroom is really important or being able to prepare mm. their own meals or to take breaks during the day. Or, you know, what I was facing a lot, I was on a large company campus and often was expected to kind of sprint in between buildings for meetings. And yeah. my boss is like jetting, right? And I'm like, I will meet you there because yeah. I can't get there on time. Um, or the, the work that I have to do to get there on time, I have to pay for that in the pain that I'm going to experience later tonight and tomorrow because of that, you know, energy Mm. expenditure. And so there are a lot of things that, you know, folks in the disability community have been asking for to be able to work like flexible work hours or being able to work Mm. from home or the type of chair or things that they need in their space to be comfortable. Um, And they haven't been able to get it, right? Mostly for lack of political will and they say for lack of resources. But when the pandemic hit and every single person had to work from home, everyone got the things that they need. (laughs) And so I'm actually really worried about, you know, returning to the office and people who are experiencing a better quality of life at home or with that, you know, more flexibility, you know, potentially losing that if they have to go back into the office or what a lot of people are doing with this great resignation is actually finding employers um, and workplaces that can better meet the needs that they, that an accommodate, it's not accommodations anymore, right? You don't have to accommodate me. I just get to work. (laughs) Um, And so I, (laughs) I, I think, you know, if folks are serious about disability inclusion, that they'll look at how 
this, you know, remote working situation has been really helpful p- for people who have um, physical disabilities or other invisible in have physical disabilities or other invisible disabilities and how to retain that if they are returning to the office. I think at the time that we're recording right now, I last checked, like roughly 12 million people are dealing with the lingering effects, symptoms of having had COVID. There are a lot of people who are in a lot of pain and have a lot of needs that are not being met by their employers and if they have them, right? Because <laughs> there's also a lot of people who became unemployed in the past couple of years. And you know, and also people who are going to be looking for different things out of healthcare, where their healthcare needs have changed significantly. How should we be thinking about this turning point that's kind of at like the intersection of accessibility, healthcare equity, and work? It's a lot. It is a lot. And, a doozy. and I, it is a, <laughs> doozy. a doozy. And I, I like, think that health insurance um, thing is, is, absolutely critical right now. Um, even me, as much as I talk about healthcare insurance and all of that, I'm in a really precarious situation right now where I, my entire care team is at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. And I just got mm-hmm. off my COBRA from my last employer who laid me off at the top of the pandemic. Thank you so much for releasing me from the toxicity of that. Um, but Sloan Kettering doesn't accept insurances from the exchange. And so mm. where am I oh, getting my where am I getting my MRIs? Where am I my where am I getting access to the person who did my surgery and who's been caring for me for the past four years? And so yeah. there are a lot of people with, you know, losing their jobs or switching jobs that are experiencing changes and shifts in what their healthcare looks like for themselves and for their families. I think, you know, the entry point to identifying as someone who is disabled Mm -hmm. is a journey for a lot of people because we often just see disability as, you know, your wheelchair user or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, something that feels quote unquote big to other people or obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, When we Mm -hmm. think about long COVID and that being recognized itself as a disability because of, you know, everything that you're talking about, the symptoms and how that impacts people and how differently that can impact people. Mm-hmm. It will create, you know, and not just an influx of numbers of people who would be classified as, dis- as disabled, but that's also a new surge of people who, to your point, are thinking differently about health. And so mm. what I would say is unfortunately, a lot of the people who make decisions about our healthcare <laughs> are not having these conversations the way that we're having it or facing the impossible decisions that we have to face when it comes to our health and our finances. Okay. What I would love to see is our legislators, our political leaders, and folks who are on the ground advocating to get really, really serious about universal health care and high-quality health care for every single person that lives in this country. In the same way that folks are advocating that we talk about climate in every single thing that we do, we also need to be talking about health care in every single thing that we do. We can't produce. We can't work. We can't do anything. We can't create. Yeah. We can't innovate 
if we don't have our health. And so I don't want it to be that people have to face a health crisis on their own to get really serious about their advocacy. But Mm. I would encourage people to find some way, shape, or form in whatever you have access and resources to to keep pushing the envelope for supporting universal health care in this country. Jody Ann, when I say this has been a pleasure, like, you know, for his word, Brittany hyped you up. (laughs) But you also delivered. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Look, my money is good around here, okay? (laughs) Okay. I appreciate that. I do appreciate that. This has been phenomenal. Thank you so much. For sharing and, and just also the knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. Colored Nerds was created by me, Brittany Luce, and Eric Eddings. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producers Alexis Williams, Willis Arnold, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Casey Holford is our technical director, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. We love hearing from listeners, so please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds and never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. Life doesn't have a pause button. That's why Capella University's FlexPath learning format lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them if something comes up. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference for you at capella.edu.